Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, a presentation of Confluence Investment Management. Today is part two of our discussion on China with Confluence Investment Management Market Strategist Patrick Theron Hernandez. On part one, we focused on the military rivalry between the two countries. Today, we concentrate on the economic rivalry. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Our discussion is generated from Patrick's five-part written series on China. You can find these reports by clicking on the weekly geopolitical report tab on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com. Patrick, we've already discussed that China is making strides militarily and clearly wants to dominate in the South China Sea and assume dominance over uh, Taiwan. Turning to financial matters, Chinese economic strength is very evident. More than 80% of chip production happens in Asia, with China leading the charge. The U.S. is also heavily reliant on China for some drug ingredients, also electronic components, also rare earth elements used in hundreds of technology products. Would you agree that what started as a trade war with China has become a technology war and could become a, a currency war as well? Well, first of all, thanks again for having me on the show, Phil. And what you're talking about really is a key message in my report. The U.S. and China are stepping on each other's toes in all kinds of areas, including the military, the economic, the technological, and the financial. For the sake of brevity, I focus on the military, economic, and diplomatic aspects of the competition, but those aspects also involve the interrelated aspects of technology, finance, and even education and culture. This great power rivalry really is multidimensional, and it would be a mistake to see it only as economic or technological. President Biden a while ago signed an executive order to review supply chains that support various American industries, including automobiles, pharmaceuticals, and clean energy. What can we expect from this effort, and what reaction might we anticipate from China? Well, I think that this kind of broad, systematic review of supply chains will support the idea of decoupling or reducing U.S. dependency on Chinese producers. After all, to the extent that decoupling means reshoring production back to the U.S. and providing more factory jobs for U.S. workers, it would fit nicely into the Biden administration's policy priorities. To thwart the effort, China will probably first try to cozy up to U.S. business interests so that they'll put pressure on the administration to roll back the Trump tariffs and other barriers to Chinese exports. If that fails, China may also eventually try to pressure the U.S. by cutting off key supplies and showing how much the U.S. needs Chinese goods. However, there's now such strong bipartisan sentiment against China in the U.S. that some kind of supply chain reform seems inevitable. In other words, the supply chain study is likely to provide more evidence that the U.S. and China probably won't go back to their old trading relationship anytime soon. Can the United States expect shortages of some materials to become more frequent and perhaps deepen? 
Rejiggering global production chains can be a long, detailed process. So if there's an effort to do it quickly, there's probably some implementation risk. That's especially the case depending on the incentives or disincentives used to nudge companies along. And like I mentioned, concerted government effort to cut dependence on China would spur a punitive response from the Chinese government. Keep in mind that in my articles, I emphasize that China's real economic leverage is in its huge import demand. Many foreign countries, including many key U.S. allies, export huge amounts to China, and China can exercise a lot of power by threatening to block those exports. China is also a significant source of investment capital and foreign aid. All the same, China is a major source of supply for many products, and cutting off that supply could be problematic. Patrick, what advantages do the United States hold economically over China, and and how can we nurture these advantages? Even though a country can have economic power in lots of different ways, the focus of my article was on the Chinese and U.S. demand for foreign goods and services and on their provision of capital abroad. In each case, the U.S. actually still has the advantage. The U.S. still imports more from other countries than China does. And it provides more capital, especially equity capital. Indeed, the U.S. willingness to run trade deficits and to provide the world's key reserve currency, in other words, the dollar, to foreign trade partners was an important way in which the country maintained its global dominance ever since World War II. It's still a big U.S. advantage, so a lot of people focus more on the fact that Chinese imports and foreign investment are growing faster. One big dilemma for the U.S. is that wielding this power of trade and investment runs counter to the growing populist anti-globalization sentiment in the U.S. Patrick, one of your reports on this subject focused on soft power diplomatic influence. China is building its influence in lower level United Nations committees and other international organizations like the World Bank. At the same time, the United States during the Trump presidency seemed to take a step back from traditional alliances and pay less attention to cooperative world bodies. Can this trend be reversed if the American public is not behind the effort? This is another area where bolstering U.S. power may run counter to the populist anti-globalization sentiments that so many Americans espouse these days. One key thing that we're watching is how U.S. citizens will respond to President Biden's goal of re-engaging with allies and again taking a leadership role in global institutions. Our traditional allies and the world in general may no longer view America the same way they once did, for instance, as a shining city on a hill or something to that effect. Do we still have an an advantage, an overwhelming soft power diplomatic advantage over China? I think the U.S. still retains a lot of soft power from the fact that it has been a major supporter of freedom and democracy, justice and prosperity around the world for many decades. It's true that recent events may have damaged our stature to some extent, but I suspect that damage can be repaired. In other words, this soft power is one of the most important advantages that the U.S. retains in its rivalry with China. 
Let's explore that a little bit more. How can we effectively counter China in this area of soft diplomacy and publicize effectively our goals and our image? One thing that I think the Biden administration is doing right is trying to right the ship domestically by toning down the political rhetoric, focusing on elimination of the coronavirus pandemic, and seeking to spark a quick economic rebound. If the U.S. gets its own domestic house in order quickly, that alone could send a message about the viability and advantages of democracy. On top of that, I think it would be important to just focus on and and build up U.S. messaging to the world. As a child of the Cold War, I remember how vital and active the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe were in undermining support for the Soviet Union. I'm curious to see if a similar effort might be made now to foster a more positive image of the U.S. again and to highlight the downsides of authoritarian communism as practiced by the Communist Party of China. In fact, that was something that former CIA director Robert Gates argued strongly for in his latest book entitled Exercise of Power. Patrick, if the United States continues to withdraw from global hegemon status because we no longer want to pay the costs, what outcome can we expect in terms of this rivalry with China? As investors, I think one key thing to fear is that U.S. political dynamics might slow the U.S. response to China's rise to the extent that when the U.S. finally recognizes the threat, China might be too strong to resist without severe costs. Some would argue that we've already gotten to that point. This is the risk of Thucydides' trap, which is a term from international relations which describes the high risk of war whenever an incumbent hegemon is threatened by a rising power. But even if we're not to that point yet, any effort by the U.S. to push back against China's rise or its bad behavior now raises tensions and will also lead to costs, whether it's in terms of trade disruptions, investment restrictions, higher defense budgets, and the like. As the rivalry intensifies in the coming years, I think global geopolitics could often be touch and go. You bring out the point that if we are willing to pay the costs, some of the impact might be positive for us. Could you explain? Yeah, even though I mentioned high defense budgets in my discussion of costs, I actually think the net cost of high defense budgets is less than meets the eye. Remember that my formative years at the CIA were in the branch that examined the extent to which the USSR's high defense spending impacted the Soviet economy. Our analysis found that high defense spending actually isn't a drag on the economy until it gets to be very high and sustained, say 10% of GDP or more. Below those levels, spending to support the military can actually be beneficial. For example, defense concerns can justify research and investment in new technologies that otherwise might not get done, as it did for the internet. It can also help justify more basic investment, like President Eisenhower's interstate highway system, which is formally called the National System of Defense and Interstate Highways. Finally, defense spending can employ otherwise excess labor and potentially boost workers' skills. You conclude your series of reports with investment implications. What can we expect near term? 
One key message is that the Trump administration's clampdown on investing in Chinese companies may not be reversed anytime soon. In fact, as the Biden administration takes a tougher than expected approach to China, those restrictions could well be broadened. That would likely be negative for the kinds of Chinese stocks available to U.S. investors. In addition, Taiwanese stocks, even the most high-flying ones, could be at risk if Taiwan gets gets caught in the crossfire between China and the U.S. Of course, U.S. companies facing disruptions in their Chinese trade or investment activities could see their stock values decline, but U.S. firms that have been struggling to compete with China or U.S. firms in the defense sector might benefit. To the extent that military tensions rise, oil and other commodities are likely to see a neater jump but less dramatic efforts to rein in Chinese economic activity could translate into lower global demand for those commodities and actually weigh on prices. Similarly, military tensions could prompt safe haven buying and boost U.S. Treasury bonds, but if decoupling with China means higher inflation, it could weigh on bond values and boost yields over time. Thank you, Patrick. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our guest today has been Confluence Market Strategist Patrick Theron-Hernandez. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com, and you can find us on Twitter at Confluence IM. 